Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I am your host, Michael Columbus from Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And today, I've got a really exciting show for you. Um, we are joined by Mark Bronfman um, from Bold Value. And Mark is a specialist. He's one of the specialists that we reach out to and, and partner with when it comes to strategic incentives um, for growth and succession planning within family businesses that we serve. So welcome, Mark. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Great. Um, we have a, you know, we always ask people to kind of tell us their journey. Um, you didn't, you know, go to college, you know, and say, ooh, I can't wait to do strategic incentives and growth and succession planning for business owners. Um, but there's, you know, you, you've been in this world and in this industry for a bunch of, you know, many, many years. Tell us what that journey looked like for you and how, you know, one thing led to another, led to another to where you are today. Thanks, Michael. So um, uh, I am a classically trained strategy management consultant in the first half of my career. So I went to Penn State University, got my MBA at Darden at UVA. Uh, went into management consulting uh, after a couple of years as a CPA with Coopers and Librand way back when, if you remember that 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 name, uh, and um, uh, was in uh, uh, really an international role, working with clients in um, Asia, Europe, U.S., premier set of clients, uh, and I had the opportunity. Um, after my employer Accenture went public, uh, I was I had the opportunity to take my winnings and 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 go. We we uh, we had a partner to leave program. This was at the end of the recession in what was it uh, two thousand and one? Okay. And uh, uh, you know they they started to move partners over to to Asia. And my wife was not going to move to Asia at all. She was not going to move to Singapore. She's not going to move to to Seoul, and you know, and and we had done well enough. So, um, uh, like a lot of other people, I had a liquidity event, okay, which was which was great. And then I had a question of, so now I'm in my mid forties. What am I going to do? What's my identity? And uh, uh, sometime when, when when we have more time, I'll, I'll tell you the story about how I actually ended up at SageMark. Uh, but it was a referral from someone in the insurance industry, and. Uh, and 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 people had 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 told me that financial services was a great place to be. And Sagemark, by the way, is is a, is a division of Lincoln Financial Advisors, the platform that both you and I are affiliated with. Mm -hmm. And um, as I went around the the 
financial services industry and try to find out where I may find an, an, a great home. Several organizations said, we aspire to be like Sagemark. <laughs> so I said, well, if you aspire to be like Sagemark, well, I'm just going to go to Sagemark. Right. And I joined Sagemark in 2003. Uh, I found my business model around privately held business owners in 2005, made chairman's council 2007 and been there where been there uh, since nice. uh, chairman's council, as you may know, is, uh, you know, the top advisors inside of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Yeah. Uh, and um, what's funny is there's a lot of myths in this industry. And one myth is that if you've got a CFO, you've got, you don't need an outside party to help you through succession planning. And that cannot be wrong. That cannot be more than the, than the truth. Yeah. Um, one of my coaches said, Mark, you're going to be able to use your services, your background, your financial acumen for companies that maybe are 25, 35, $40 million. Once you hit the $50 million in revenue, they're not going to need you. They have a CFO. They got the whole thing covered. And as I got into it and realized that on topics of leadership, on topics of ownership, on topics of stewardship, the entire arc of strategic incentives really need to be brought into the fore. And I've been doing it ever since. Uh, so I bring a very unique set of skills of management consulting uh, and financial advisory services to our clients in privately held businesses. So for just... For people that don't really understand when you talk about the work that you did at Accenture, um, can you give us like an example or two of like how you would help clients when you were there? And because I think it really translates well into what you're doing today. So when you're dealing with um, uh, large clients, my clients, uh, my published clients back then included companies like Sony. Samsung, Disney, Best Buy, you know, really a, a set of A-class clients. Sure. Very politically driven organizations. A lot of people who have initiatives, people move around from place to place. And one of the things that I learned to go do was to manage a multi-stakeholder environment. And working in strategic incentives for middle market companies, you have to be able to be like Switzerland. You've got to embrace the needs of your family, your executives, your company. You may even need to embrace the needs of potential acquirers or venture partners. And so the ability to zoom out and have everyone there feel like you, you don't have a favorite in the, in the game, but you're there as a facilitator is a key lesson that I learned in management consulting. And like it or not like it, a lot of financial advisors grow up in an environment where they just have a single client right? and never have to deal with the question of different objectives. Uh, and I guess the other element of it is, um, you know, at Accenture, at Deloitte, where I was, very financially driven organizations, uh, very financially driven projects. And... Um, the ability to, 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 to get into, with my CPA background, in, into financials, the financial statements, uh, valuations, um, really getting into the core of 
what creates value inside of an organization is, is, is not a typical skill for a financial advisor. Agreed. So with all those kind of things, I'm able to bring my, me and my team are able to bring a great level of value. And what really makes things exciting is when a client turns to you during the project and the end of the project and they say, Mark, you don't understand how much value you've brought to the equation. I've been looking for someone like you for a long time. And, you know, clients don't always say thank you. And when they say thank you, it really matters. Of course. Yeah. And, you know, what's really interesting, as you said, when you were working in those politically motivated organizations, you know, there's lots of silos and lots of different players in that arena. And it is so true with the middle market businesses as well. It's just different. It's, you know, like we were talking before the show started is, you know, I was working with a family that has multi-generations. So one generation is talking about, well, we don't want to give you X amount of dollars. And the other generation is like, yeah, but we're trying to retire. And so, you know, there's that, 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 you know, yin and yang happening there, the tug, you know, the push and pull. And then on top of that, there's employees that are wondering, are they going to make it through this transition? Is this going to happen? And when you have those dynamics and, you know, there are heavy emotions on top of the political silos that you might have from the, you know, different family members, especially when you get, you know, what I found is when you get to the third generation and not everybody was raised in the same house. And so there's different value pieces that are brought to it. And on top of that, there's emotions, you know, if you get to be president, dad loved you more. And so you have to, there, there's being Switzerland is a really great skill that we bring to the table. Um, the other thing that I'd say is that you and I, you know, at Sage Mark Lincoln Financial, um, one of the things and the reasons why I've chosen to, you know, plant with this company and stay with this company all the years that I've been here is because of initiatives like the Business Intelligence Institute, where, you know, people like you and I get together and we talk about, you know, how do we best serve these business owners, these middle market businesses that are really, you know, I, for, how do I say this? But it's um, oftentimes they need the services that a family office would bring to them. They need somebody taking that 30,000 foot view and everybody looking at them from the perspectives of, you know, not just transition and business and, and strategy, but also in terms of my estate planning and my tax, tax strategies and retirement and all these other different pieces. And, but most of their value, most of their net worth is in the business. So they don't have the $100 million to start this. And so we kind of, and, you know, I know how you work when we work a lot the same way in, is that, you know, we may come at it from our specialty, but we're always looking to bring in the accountant. We're looking to bring in the attorney so that when we're making and helping the client make decisions and we're educating them about things, it's always about how do we get the highest and best use out of their assets that they have, right? Right. And, and you know, if, if there's one uh, superpower that I've got, it's being a collaborator. Yeah. And everyone needs to know their own superpower. And when someone first asked me that question, you know, about a decade ago, I had to think about it. 
but it, it really works out well. We're not here to replace other advisors. We're here to create a fabric of advisors right. to solve an issue, to solve a problem. I love it. And that's a, we have that same you know, mentality as we're going through. I just sent an email to a, a new attorney that we're, we're doing some estate planning work with. And I said, you know, let him know. I said, just as an FYI, I'm a little different than other advisors. I'm very collaborative, really want to be engaged so that if there's something that I know about the client's objectives or goals that they didn't tell you, you don't miss it. And if there's something that's going on, you know, from their tax perspective, we can bring in the accountant and they're happy to talk about this stuff so that we're all on the same page as we're doing, helping the client, you know, get to from point A to point B. So let's talk about what you do at Bold Value today. And, you know, the, that middle market that you serve, that we serve, um, you have this really unique, special approach to how you serve and how you, you know, how you show up for people. Talk about that a bit, if you don't mind. Sure. So uh, we have this practice that I call strategic incentives. And it has three pillars to it. The pillar of leadership, the pillar of ownership, and the pillar of stewardship. And riding on the arc of the full business experience, the full business owner experience, we're able to bring those three things together. And what does that mean? You know, many of our clients are professional services companies or companies that live and die by human capital. And these days, human capital is probably the single most important, biggest asset that any company would ever have. Yeah. And more than just struggling with the executive compensation issues, of how to attract and retain talent. It's how do you weave strategic incentives into the issues of goals, of um, growth, succession, and keeping the end in mind. One of the things I love to say is that there's, there's, there's many exit strategies, many succession strategies, but if you know which exit strategy you're working on, and there's, I'm going to walk through four of them. That'll tell you an awful lot about how you want to reward on the front end. And, and, and so, so before I do that, I just want to distinguish between executive compensation and strategic incentives. Because people get them conflated and think that they, they are the same exact thing. Executive compensation answers the question of how are your peers paying? What are you paying? How do you provide long and short-term incentives? And it, it, it's, it's, it's relatively sterile. It's, it's relatively mathematical. And it can be almost hands-free. Every company has a strategy as to what amount of short-term, what amount of long-term incentives. But that's about as far as, exe as executive compensation goes. Yeah. Strategic incentives tries to weave it into the larger strategies of the organization. You know, really, where is the goal, the opportunity uh, in, in regard to culture, uh, in regard to in, in regard to a career paths, in regard to uh, what really creates value? A and one of the greatest myths that we have is that all EBITDA is equal, and the more profit that a company has, the more valuable it is. And that's not necessarily true. Because 
strategic incentives understands that you may have a software product and a services business and the software products may trade for lots of may, may trade for a whole lot more than the services business will and so if you just re, re reward on cash uh, and reward based on your financial statements you're not going to be able to do a good job so I, I've, I've really distinguished this thing, the whole difference between strategic incentives and executive compensation. And, and, and keeping the end in mind, we talk about four different succession pathways. Right. And these are really important, Michael. And if there's anything, anyone, anything any, anyone walks away with, it's understanding these four. So the first one is moving towards a change in control. And that, I know you work with family-owned businesses, some family businesses, you know, say that once we hit a certain milestone, a certain size, et cetera, or a certain value, we're going to sell. Some are going to be there perpetually. But that's a different kind of objective from the second kind of succession pathway, which is a perpetual business. Mm -hmm. We think about perpetual businesses like partnerships, law firms, accounting firms, engineering firms, architecture firms. They may or may not have family in them, but they necessarily are organizations that uh, want to stay at least two to three to four generations of management. Generation management is probably seven to 10 years. A third succession pathway is keep it in the family. And when you want to keep it in the family, you typically have a generational gap between those that are older, have learned the business, and those that are younger that are not yet ready. And the key issue with a, with a keep it in the family business is how do you bring on professional management and give them a reward that doesn't mess up your estate planning and all those kind of elements like that. And then a fourth succession path is an ESOP, an employee stock ownership plan, which is a way to get some liquidity out of a business, keep control, management control over it. Uh, and that requires a whole different kind of uh, incentive plan because of the gyrating value of an ESOP as you go through the recapitalization of the ESOP over time. So, so knowing whether or not you are going to do strategic incentives around, around change of control, around um, a perpetual business, whether or not you're going to do it around a family-owned business or whether or not you do it on ESOP is critically important. And with that end in mind, then you can come back in and have a better view of executive compensation, strategic incentives, and make the whole thing work together. Yeah. And, and, and we've had clients turn to us and say, we've just never seen an approach like this. And, and thank you so much for doing it. It's, you know, as we talk about, we're both in the business exit planning space. And, and that's really one of the most important conversations that we have with a client is helping them to understand the, you know, the, the vast, the, the number of different options that are available there and then helping them to get through to understand what is their objective because if you know Simon Sinek begin with the end in mind right if we don't know where you want to go how are we going to know if you got there that's right so very important very very important thank you and, you know it's interesting and you don't know you and I haven't had this conversation so I'm gonna I you come at your work um, from the strategic incentive position, which I love. And I, I have a, a, a quick story to tell you. I have a guy that runs a small engine company that I know of. 
every single employee in the business is compensated based on the work that they do as well as their hourly wage. And so here's a guy that runs his business one week a month in town, three weeks a month in his home in the South. And from, you know, so in his business is in upstate New York. And, and I'm, you know, we talk about it. And I said, you're one of the few that understands that you're incentivizing people from a strategic, you know, place that's helping them to understand that they're not just a cog in the wheel. They are the wheel, you know, they are what makes the business run and you've aligned them um, in a way that, you know, keeps people incentivized to do a great job for you and to be able to run the business without you there. And I think that's a lot of the people's goals. And again, you know, it's how do I work on my business, not just in my business? How do I not have to have all of the, the stress of being the entrepreneur in the business? How do I run this more as the CEO and the alignment of, you know, strategic incentives, you know, from your perspective, does that incredibly well. And, you know, you and I, have talked before and we've you know talked with you know some of our clients in the past and we'll do that some more in the future. I come at it from a standpoint of these entrepreneurs were really good at doing something. Okay. Whether it be running, you know, a sheet metal or you know, demolition or, you know, most of my, you know, a lot of my businesses are in the um construction world, real estate development, whatever their widget, whatever their thing was, they got really good at it. And then they, you know, they were benevolent dictators, which I, <laughs> you know, and they, they were really good with their people, but they told them what to do and they kind of controlled everything. And now they're thinking about succession and they haven't built teams. And so I come in and help them with moving from that benevolent dictator to a, you know, strategically aligned team on the future of the business. I believe that the two of us, if you partnered those two pieces together, just uh, really, really helps a, a company. So we, we're going to talk some more about a lot of the, you know, what you're thinking about and how you do things. And I can't, I'm looking forward to bringing that in for a lot of the people that, you know, we talk to because, it just fits hand in glove when you can get them aligned around the vision and the culture of the company, but then also pair their incentives strategically and match them together. It's like now you're, you know, you're not just preaching to the choir, everybody's singing, you know? So, so can I tell you two stories on, on, on this? Sure. Um, one's a story about how uh, there's a disconnect often between equity structure and ownership and executive compensation. And the second story is about getting synthetic equity, which is a term that I'll define down deep in the organization. So I walk into a prospect. I ask him how he pays and how he's organized, all that kind of stuff. And it comes out that he's got three key people, two owners that are 50-50, Right. And one guy who's a key up and comer who's got 4% of the company in stock options. And I ask him, let's call him Phil. It's not his real name. But I ask Phil, Phil, what's wrong with this picture? 50 50 and 4% stock <laughs> options. And he says, nothing. I love it. And I say, what happens, Phil, 
when the stock when the four percent stock option holder exercises, they go from being a four percent stock option holder to a four percent equity owner. He says, I guess they own four percent of stock. And I say, okay, so what now has happened to the value of your own stock? And he says, what? And I said, well, I've looked at your shareholders agreement and minority shareholders have a 25% discount off of their value. So as soon as this 4% stock option holder exercises, your shares go down by 25% in value. Did you know that? But I say, worse than that, who now has the control over this company? He says, what do you mean? I says, well, if you have big decisions to make, sell the company, do a big acquisition, et cetera, who's the swing vote? And he thinks about it, he thinks about it, and he takes his head and he starts banging it on the <laughs> desk and saying, okay, I give up. But that's an example of how people just don't understand the interconnection between capital structure and executive compensation. Yeah. And, and to your point before talking about, you know, the CFO's job is not to read that stockholder agreement or the buy sell agreement and to understand how the structure works there. Their job is to be focused on the financials, make sure cash flow is going well, make sure that there's, you know, cash to grow and do all the things that need to be taken care of. Um, it's why we, you know, why we have a job, but I think it's, Really important that we make that note again, that there's a distinction. You're the chief financial officer of the company. That doesn't necessarily mean that you've got, you know, that you've built the skills around, you know, shareholder agreements, operating agreements, and um, strategic incentives. And you may have some things where you took a class, but you've got 20 years, I have 20 years of, of doing these things. And so we've just seen more. And like when somebody's selling a business or somebody's doing strategic incentives, you know, you're doing this once. Wouldn't you, you know, wouldn't you want to work with somebody that's done this many, many, many times? So let me give you the second story, sure. uh, which is what's old is new again. Okay. So are you familiar with the private equity firm KKR? I am. Okay, so they have a partner by the name of Pete Stravos. Okay. Who now has a not-for-profit entity called Ownership Works. And they are trying to solve what we've already solved, what we're already doing, is giving slices of equity to every rank-and-file person inside of the organization on the upside private equity firm, as you know, their, 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 their typical game plan is they come in, they buy an organization, they hold it for a period of three to five to seven years and then sell. Yep. And, you know, five, seven, 10 years ago, that may have been viewed as um, Machiavellian. I think now it's viewed as a, a very good way of doing business because sure. they are involved in so many transactions. And uh uh, so Pete Stravos, uh, you know, is, 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 is raising the flag that, that by giving 
slices of equity to everyone in your organization, especially blue collar organizations, you can have people who are more responsible and rewarded for innovation, esprit de corps, for really value creation inside the organization. Well, we've done this using synthetic equity, and I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to define that term now. Um, people know what equity is: stock options, true stock, S corporation stock, C corporation stock, LLC, etc. Synthetic equity is a mathematical equivalent to equity, but it's paid out as compensation, not property and can be almost any calculation you want it to be, any financial calculation. So you can say, if, if I'm running a business uh, and, and I've got a, a set of car dealerships and it's worth $100 million, I'm going to give any slice above $100 million or uh, any amount that I want. If you can articulate it, you can do it with synthetic equity. Okay. And, and so what we've done recently for some clients is uh, partitioned off five, 10, 15% of the overall upside value of the organization and given that to every single person inside the organization. Now that pays off only upon a change of control. Why is that? Because it's much too complicated uh, to try to pay that off per a perpetual company, et cetera. But, but for a company that says, I'm gonna be selling, you know, in the standpoint of three, five, seven, 10 years, and people who can get a piece of it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, 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 it, and it really shows from the heart as to what you're really made of. Not every company is going to go do this. Some companies don't have that level of size and scale. Uh, but we're using synthetic equity in a way that really changes the culture of organizations. Love it. I mean, it's Jack Stacks, the great game of business. Get everybody involved. And, you know, make them, you know, have ownership thinking. And that brings, like you said, the innovation to the organization and gets everybody aligned um, in how they're doing things. So it's not always about the silos, about my or, you know, my group, my, the, my people that report to me. It's what's best for the business because we're all getting compensated based on that strategic or the uh, synthetic equity rather. And I, right. I love that. Very good. So the other thing that, you know, we do really well together on you coming from the personal planning side and everything else you're doing and, and our team coming from the business side is you can't do a work on strategic incentives without really understanding the, the family structure, the family wealth and what you have achieved. One of my clients coined the term personal endowment, which I love. Mm. which is what's the amount of money I need to have in order to endow my family with enough money that they're okay for the rest of their lives. And once you know that personal endowment number, let's call it $20 million for just sake of having a number out there. Anything above that has a law of diminishing returns to the family. Sure. And so, you know, you often say you have three places you can leave your money. You can leave it with family, charity, the IRS. I say, why not a fourth one? Oh, I love that. Mark, and, and the fourth one is? The fourth one is the people that got you there. The fourth one is the people that got you the wealth. Yeah. And, and, and this runs off of the classically trained work of Daniel Kahneman, 
in his famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow, okay. around prospect theory, which is in one way, the law of diminishing returns. But what we do is we tailor these business owner value sharing techniques to the personal uh, endowment that families need. And that's why I work mostly with the upside because that's that that's uh, the law of diminishing returns. Right. Once you know what you need, having a dollar more really doesn't make a difference. I love that concept. So when when we're talking with business owners, you're right. I always say there's three places where your money can go. It can go to the IRS. It can go to taxes and go to your, your charity. IRS charity or your family. But there's a fourth bucket there that is just eye-opening. You can go to your the employees, the people that help you build this, you know, organization at a much higher, deeper, meaningful le level that could really change their lives, not just change your family's life. Right. So one way of doing this, and it, and and this is not a recommendation. This is just every situation is different. Right. Uh, one of the designs that we've put together uh, is a split dollar insurance contract where the beneficiaries of, of, of the, of the um, insurance policy are the executives themselves. So if the patriarch passes away and there aren't um, the, the, the people inside the family to take it over and the family doesn't want it, then the life insurance proceeds goes into a trust for the benefit of these uh, executives, they use that as seed capital to then buy out the company. Now, that is not executive compensation. You not would never, all. you would never ever get there from executive compensation. Right. But, but, but when the patriarch says you guys are being uh, lined up to be able to buy out the company, and I'm and and I'm doing that for you, that makes all sense in the world. But I'm keeping all the power in this because. Once I set this up, I can determine year by year whether or not I want to have the uh, insurance proceeds going out to my family or going to you guys. If, I get, if it goes to you guys, you guys are going to pay the insurance premium value each year. And I may bonus you up for that. But these are examples, you know, where you just end up at a place that's different than what you expected. Yeah. We came into a, um, a, a engagement recently um where a construction company in washington dc uh wanted help around executive compensation and very clearly it, it became clear that the owner who's 57 years old wanted a pathway to exit and we ended up doing an esop with a stock appreciation right plan attached to it for the executives that really scratches all the itch and you never would have gotten there you know from a standpoint of just doing a a um a competitive pure compensation study strategic consensus is so much broader the arc is so much more important and so much more impactful to a to to a business owner and, and, and that was a situation where we brought in dan Prisciata, uh of equity strategies group to do the esop and um uh, and it, the client could not be happier. Yeah. And it's, you know, one of the things 
the, the ESOP, thank goodness, I think 10 years ago, there was a, a misnomer that, you know, it's, it, it's too complicated. There's too many moving parts. Not quite, you know, there was, there was a lot of downplay, I think, on the ESOP. I think in the last 10 years, even maybe in the last five years, you know, more specifically, where people are starting to really realize that the ESOP is a powerful, powerful tool um, and can really make a competitive difference in the business. It can be an alignment of, you know, the, the employee um, engagement, just so many good things when it's done properly. Again, you know, like I'm a big fan of family philanthropy. I believe that family philanthropy can be a sandbox for teaching entrepreneurship to young children. Okay. I'm talking about as young as five years old, six years old. You can start teaching leadership skills and communication skills by utilizing family philanthropy. So that's where I come from. But I always tell my clients, I said, do not start a family foundation just for the tax purposes. There are so many, you know, don't do this for you. I, I still want you to be thinking about the community that helped you to be successful. It has to be coming from the heart first, and then you'll get all of the side benefits that come with it. And I think the same thing is true with an ESOP is don't be doing this just because of how the benefits work for you. Think about all of the people that are involved because it really makes a big benefit to everybody. There is work that goes inside of an ESOP, but it's so worth it when it's done properly. Yeah, and ESOPs are probably uh, not right for most companies. Um, one of my dear friends uh, took his business ESOP. He was a client. Um, uh, and, um, you know, they were in a weird situation where if they were to sell the company on the outside, every one of the logical buyers had some conflict of interest and would not be able to take the full set of revenue that they were offering. Okay. But a financial buyer, an ESOP could. So they were an organization that if they sold to one of the big four, one of the big six accounting firms, consulting firms, they were, they, they, it was a conflict around being able to take all that revenue. And, and the ESOP was the right answer. And, and, and they also were a company that went from an LLC to a C corporation to do the ESOP which worked out very, very well for them. And they did the 1042 and all those kind of geeky things we talk about. Sure. And that, I mean, that's the fun part about for you and I, you just said magic words to me. I'm a geek and I'm okay. I love being <laughs> because it's that geekiness that makes me look into <laughs> weird, you know, potential solutions that somebody didn't think about. We just had a client and, you know, I tell people all the time, and you mentioned insurance earlier, you and I are not insurance salespeople by any means. We help people buy insurance a lot of times because it's just the only solution. And so this family was going through transition. One child's taking over the business. It's a $20 million business and he's getting it gifted to him, but he has three siblings. How do you think Thanksgiving dinner is going to look when... Right. You know, and so what we ended up doing and dad had put left all the money in the business for many, many, many years. That's what his you know decisions were. So he didn't really have a ton of money. So when he leaves, he needed to be able to have a nice retirement. And so we put together a nice deferred comp program for him. And we did a split dollar with a trust 
for a, a, a giant, it was a $20 million life insurance policy. And I, this is, again, not a recommendation. This just worked for this family. And so the son is now paying. So he is now paying. It's not just gifted to him. He's paying dad's deferred comp and he's paying the insurance premiums on a $20 million life insurance policy so that when mom and dad pass, the, his sisters, you know, have cash. Right. And it's in trust for them. And so it was just that, how do we take, you know, all of the different things that are out there? You tell me what you're trying to do. Don't, don't tell me how to do it. That's where I think a lot of our clients sometimes get wrapped around the axle is they want to tell you, oh, well, what if we did this? Or what if we did that? I'm like, just tell me what you want. And then we'll tell you how, because we want to try on two or three or five or maybe 17 different ideas to help you think through, again, go back to what we said in the beginning, what's the highest and best used, most efficient and effective way to manage and work with your capital. And when we talk about capital, you and I talk about not just your assets, but we tell your capital is your people and your family. And it's the social and it's, you know, the relational capital that you have that you bring to this thing. And we want all of those pieces of capital to be right up there. I, I, I want to ask you, you know, I've looked at your website and I really, anybody that has, you know wants to take a peek at Bold Values website, you would just be blown away with the articles and the writings that Mark has put together. I reference it probably at least monthly, just so that you know, um, and going through to be able to help have conversations um, You where you and I are slightly different. I only have probably about five or six clients and we only take on one or two a year. It's just you know, key clients. I do have, you know, people that don't fit, you know, our, you know, our core customer, which is that middle market business owner. But when I serve them, we act like that outsourced family office. Sure. And so there's just so much work to do on a regular basis for, you know, people that are going, you know, doing this stuff that that's enough for me. So I don't have a lot of swings, so to speak. I don't, you know, where you, you know, because you collaborate really well with other teams like ours, you know, advisors bring in and say, oh, I have a situation. Can you help me think through this? And it's just, you know, like I'm looking at one right now, the top 40 executive rewards, a pathway to strategic advantage. I have referenced this one, you know, one piece, one document, probably 50 times in conversations with people just to help them understand the world's big in this world of, you know, incentives and strategic, you know, thinking, and it's, it can be equity-based or it can be cash-based and it just, it can be immediate. It can be, you know, later and deferred. It's just right. so many things. I love it. Um, you talked about, you know, another concept that I've heard you talk about, and I'm hoping that you'll spend a couple of minutes talking about profits interests. Do you mind sharing with, you know, with us what that, what that is and how that might work for somebody? Right. So profits interest is the number one article that gets pulled down from the website. Uh, and we're called frequently by other attorneys, by other financial advisors, from CFOs, from board members about profits interest. And what profits interests are is a type of equity, which is upside equity, that you don't have to pay anything for. It is granted to you. It's only available inside of an LLC tax as a partnership. So if you're an LLC tax as an S corporation, it doesn't work. Okay. Uh, 
we talk about the, that there's three ways of transferring value in a privately held business, sell, pay, convey. You can sell ownership to a key executive, such as, such as stock, research of stock. You can pay it to them uh, as, as compensation. So you give it to them and then they, they, they pay tax on that compensation amount or convey it, which is to give value to an executive at no cost to them. That's what a profits interest is. So you are, uh, you are giving the upside of an amount. So if, if you have a business that's worth $10 million, the threshold value is $10 million and you can't use any discount for minority interest. Okay. Someone who has a 5% profits interest when the, when the business goes from 10 million to 30 million, it's gone up $20 million. 5% of $20 million is $1 million. Okay. They can sell that. And Michael, do you think it's taxed at ordinary income or capital gain? Capital gain. It okay. is taxed as capital gain. You get it right. You get five points for that. Thank you. <laughs> but it's probably the only type of equity that you, that, that, that you didn't pay anything for. And it's wow, and, but it but it but it's property. Okay, uh, profits interests are mostly used in self liquidating situations. What do I mean by that? Uh, people that are doing real estate partnerships that it's going to be you're 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 building a real estate um, strip mall, and you're gonna you, you're gonna sell it in in three to five to seven years. Okay. You, you might get profits interest to the people that are helping to go build this and three to five to seven years, once the whole thing sells, then it'll pay out as, as a capital gain. Alternatively, you can use it as a junior partner role. So you get profits interest, you get your value up to it, and then you convert it from profits interest to capital interest, which is class A shares, if you will. And Michael, when you do the conversion from profit interest to capital interest, do you think it's a taxable event? I would think that would make sense. You know, you're changing uh, control, changing the the type. So you're saying it's, I'm, I'm assuming it's not. <laughs> it's not a taxable event. Okay. You, you can take that, 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 that $1 million value and now uh, contribute it to the company and get your, your million dollars of capital interest. Love it. So it, it plays a lot of key roles. Um, we have used profits interest in many situations. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, they are complicated animals because you have so much flexibility in, 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 how, you put in how, how you put things together. But when you are trying to use a convey strategy, yep. Uh, profits interest is, is a great approach. Let me share with you another convey strategy. And this is one that is uh, sometimes talked about as the Popeye plan. Have you heard of the Popeye plan? Absolutely. Yeah. Help walk us through this because this is phenomenal. So, uh, and I'm not going to go into the, the, uh, the, the gory details, but let's say that you want to, uh, you've got a key uh, family member a key executive, someone that you want to convey value to, and you're not in an LLC, taxes a partnership, you can't use profits interest. 
So what you do is you seed, S-E-E-D, a small amount of capital, a small amount of capital so that you can, you can have a, this key executive have some ownership. Let's presume that the founder has 99 shares and now you seed 1%. So now it's 99 and one. Okay. That's the capital structure. Using this redemption strategy, let's say the company now redeems 90 shares from the founder. The new share table is nine and one. First question, Michael, what is now, what percentage of the company does the founder now own? Founder owns 90%. 90%. Very good. Some people say that, 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 that he sold off 90% of the business because he went from 99 to, to nine. Right. But it's the, it's the shares that are left because the company re redeemed them. So now you have nine shares plus the one. So now what percentage of the company does the executive now own? It's now the executive owns 10%. So how much tax did that executive pay in order to go up from 1% to 10%? Zero. Bubkiss. Wow. That's phenomenal. And you can use this technique as long as it's no more than 20% shifting of value uh, per year. And you can use this to go from 99 to, to, to 80 to, to you know, 20% uh, of 80 is 16. So you can bring it down to 64. So you can do that year over year to really shift the balance of power. And that all goes back to the whole concept of prospect theory. Why would I do this? I would do this if you want to flip the ownership and use the uh, key thing here is, is that you're using the triple A account, the accumulated adjustments account. I think I'm getting, I know I'm getting geeky here. So excuse me for doing that. But using the triple the, um, A account as redemption capital, not distribution capital. Got it, it works off of 301 and 302 of the tax code, but those are redemption strategies. So profit centrist is a redemption strategy. The um, redeem and accrete is a is a redemption strategy sometimes called the popeye plan okay but just learning sell pay and convey and how you can use all these different techniques is something that our team does all in the context of of, of the broader arc right of the business owner experience and, and that's why you know we've we partner with a specialist like you because this is where you shine and this is what you do. And you, you know, like, you know, you, you dig into them. I've heard of the plans, but again, go back. I have five to, you know, seven families that I serve as my core, you know, customers. So I just don't see 50 different scenarios like you do. And so, you know, when I partner for the M&A work, we bring, you know, Dan Preciad in when, or NISOP, we bring Dan in. When we're partnering, when we talk about strategic incentives, that's we're bringing in Bold Value and Mark Bronfman. And we just, you know, we appreciate that geekiness because it's, <laughs> it's legal, it's tax, it's business. There's so many different aspects of what we need to look at for a client. There's not one person out there that can know it all. 
it's just too hard. But it's like, you know, where where we shine is that, you know, we have enough knowledge in all these different areas that it's like, oh, wait a minute. This is a Mark Bronfman specialty. Hold on one second. Let's get Mark in here and we can do that. And it's beautiful. So if someone wants a primer on sell, pay, and convey, they can pull down the article entitled Equity Rules okay. from the Bold Value website. Great. And so, yeah, it's bold value, boldvalue.com. Spend some time, take a look at the articles for inspiration, look at his look at the blog. Um, there's just it's just packed full of information. I will say, and I don't, and, you know, so for somebody that's in the industry that knows what you're doing, even looking at you know, reading some of your articles, I'm like, he lost me. So if you if you're looking at this, folks, and you go to Mark's site and you're like, oh, you know. That it, it's just know that there's, it's his specialty. It is what Mark does, you know, for years now to really help people think through these areas. And this isn't an endorsement of, for your, you know, for what you do or anything. It's just the fact that it's, you know, it's not bragging if you do it. You know what I mean? And so you've been doing it for many, many years now. And uh, we appreciate it. So let me finish up with one story which reinforces the whole concept here of human capital. Because this all started with the idea of attract, retain, reward people, because human capital is the asset in the 21st century to creating value for an organization. So one of our larger clients brought us in uh, to help with a carve-out plan for key executives. Okay. And it took us probably the better part of nine to 12 months to figure this out. It was a very complicated situation. They had put in a UAR plan, a unit appreciation right plan that almost killed the company. It, it was, it's, 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 it's a plan like a SAR plan, stock appreciation right plan that people can exercise at will. And when they do that, the company needs to cough up the cash and this ended up being a growth story company of a large amount of equity value, but a small amount of cash. Not, not, not quite a dot-com, but of that ilk. Okay. So we had to come in. We had to shimmy that plan out and replace it with something else. And this company basically uh, ended up selling for $2.5 billion, 11% of the capital uh, of, of, the, of the business went through our plans. So it ended up being almost $300 million that went through the plans. And there were two comments that came out of this. One is when the white shoe law firms went through the plans, they said the plan is flawless. But more importantly than that, the, the chief human resources officer said, this plan was a lifesaver. This plan was the glue that brought everyone together and, and, and created fairness in the environment. And you guys did a great job. Yeah. And so if you're looking for tools around strategic incentives, again, more than executive compensation right. to align and promote and fit in with the, with, with, with the personal financial planning for your personal endowment and all things that we've been talking about, give us a whirl, give us a call. Through Michael, you know, we had to reach us, boldvalue.com. And uh, so I just thought you'd like to hear that story. Definitely. And, you know, it's 
we're in a battle right now. Every employer is in a battle for talent. There, if when I interview, you know, um, CEOs and talk with CEOs, um, the one thing that they all can agree upon is that the battle for talent right now is big. Um, and so, when you're talking about attracting and retaining A players, top talent. It's things like in strategic incentives are going to make the difference for that talent for a lot of these, you know, for a lot of these companies. So when you're fighting against, you know, the big boys that might have more cash to throw at people, um, you know, utilizing strategic incentives in that middle market space just makes all the sense in the world. Michael, this has been a heck of a lot of fun. I really appreciate I, it. And I appreciate and I appreciate you spending the time with us. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Bronfen from Bold Value. My name is Michael Columbus from Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And you've been listening to the Family Biz Show. Have a great day, everybody. We can't wait to have you on, listen to the next episode. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with the Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.